Thank you for the children's message. Um, good to be with you this morning. Um, thank you for the invitation to be here. I should thank Pastor John, actually, uh, who I understand is on vacation. I was hoping it was somewhere warm, but I guess skiing works as well if he's skiing. That's a, that's a good thing. Um, it's good to see many familiar faces in here, and really good to see some new ones, at least to me, as well. I know that Mount Carmel uh, continues to reach out and welcome in its neighbors as you share the love of Christ here in this Northeast Minneapolis community. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, just a brief introduction. You've heard a little bit about who I am or what my background is. I'm an assistant to the bishop uh, in our synod office. And I did have the, the privilege of working with your call committee to uh, bring Pastor John here to Mount Carmel about a year and a half ago. Uh, I'm also a pastor. I served at uh, Grace Lutheran Church in Northeast Minneapolis, down, down the hill a ways. Um, was there for almost 13 years uh, before joining the synod office about three years ago. And uh, as was mentioned also, my family and I are your neighbors. My family's here. I'm going to just point out my wife, Lisa, and son, Evan, and daughter, Nora. You can thank me later for pointing you out. Uh, we live on Garfield and 29th, just on the other side of the middle school. Um, and was mentioned also, yes, I frequently pass by the church here walking my dog. My dog particularly likes the, the smells of your shrubs in the front of your church sign out there, as well as the rabbits that hide behind them. So, um, but I try to be a responsible dog owner and clean up after her if she lingers a little too long there doing her business. Um, I bring you greetings from our Bishop Ann Svenningson and the rest of my colleagues in the Synod office. Uh, I think Pastor Deb Stalen, one of my colleagues, was here about a month ago, um, and um, she was here to preach with you. Mount Carmel is one of 146 congregations that make up our Synod. Uh, they range all the way from New Prague and Belle Plaine on the south to Waconia and Watertown to the west, and then to the north, Cambridge and Isanti, and then all of the congregations kind of in that semicircle uh, coming back into the city are all part of our, um, of our synod. Some people say that our synod includes all of the ELCA congregations west of the Mississippi um, in the metro area, but I have to remind them that this magical land of northeast Minneapolis is actually east of the river. We're not in St. Paul. I get a little sensitive about that sometimes, getting people's geography correct. That word synod actually means walking together or on a journey together. And that's really how we view our partnership with Mount Carmel. The synod is not a hierarchical structure that is over you congregations. We're actually uh, alongside of you. We're one of three what we call expressions of the Lutheran Church. There's the congregation, and then the synod, and then the, the church-wide national body as well. And we are all in the process of learning together how to be the church uh, in these rapidly changing times and in a rapidly changing culture. So the synod supports churches by helping them find great new pastors, as we hopefully did for you here. Uh, we work with congregations by training lay leaders um, we organize collective ministries across the synod in important areas like environmental stewardship and racial justice and gender equality. And we accompany churches who are going through difficult uh, processes, sometimes discerning whether or not they have the financial and human resources and capacity to continue on with their ministries, ministries that may be decades and generations old. 
In fact, um, I'll be leaving right after worship today to go and meet with a church council uh, in North Minneapolis that's asking itself these really difficult questions. And I could say a lot more about the Synod and how we work with congregations, but um, I think it's time to move right into our scripture readings for today. And I have to admit that I wish there was a little bit more of a cheery reading for us to spend some time on here this morning. But this is Lent, that six-week season of the church where we uh, are encouraged to look honestly and intentionally at ourselves and our world and to reflect on what kind of changes may be needed in order to seek alignment or realignment in our lives with God. And there's one phrase that jumped out at me from that gospel passage as I look at my life and I look at the world as we know it today. And I'm curious if that phrase jumped out at you too. It, uh, it was in the words of Pilate at the end of that tense conversation with Jesus where Pilate can't seem to figure out who Jesus is. Pilate says simply, what is truth? What is truth? Wow, I thought that was a question that we've only recently been taking up in our postmodern, polarized, pluralistic American culture. But here it is at the heart of Jesus' movement toward the cross. And I know you're going to be following this movement throughout Lent as you read readings from John's Gospel this Lenten season. What is truth? This question takes on various forms today as we try to make sense of an increasing diet of alternative facts and fake news. And I use these terms not to be political or flippant here, but uh, alternative facts and fake news are terms that have remarkably become part of our common civic vocabulary. They follow a trend really over the past 20 years or so where science and religion and politics have seemed to take greater liberties with what is considered truth. Some of you may remember how the comedian Stephen Colbert coined the term truthiness to describe how something feels like it should be true even if it's not really backed up by evidence or actions. And that word truthiness actually became the Webster Dictionary's word of the year in 2006. And then 10 years later, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth, post-truth, which it defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and to personal belief. So what is truth? What is truth in the issues that bombard our news feeds virtually every day. What is truth when it comes to foreign interference in our American elections? What is truth in our president's relationships with other world leaders and, as we've learned lately, with women outside of his marriage? What is truth in the debate between the right to own guns and the right to public safety in a country that cherishes its freedoms? What is truth in the continuing revelations of sexual harassment endured by women for years in so many sectors of our society? What is truth as white Americans increasingly revisit and relearn 
the history of oppression and discrimination endured by people of color in this country, indigenous peoples, immigrants, slaves. And how can this truth help us all pursue a future with more justice and equity for all people? Well, we may be weary of hearing about these issues, but they shape our policies and our culture in this country. They affect all of us, so they're too important to overlook. What is truth? Pilate asked this question of Jesus also, but Pilate was not interested in a philosophical or theological discussion that might lead to greater enlightenment. Pilate asks the question because he's trying to deal with a problem and deal with it quickly, and that problem happens to be Jesus. You see, Pilate was sent back to Jerusalem by the Roman emperor to serve a second term as the governor of Judea. Pilate had served there previously, and then he was promoted to rule a nice picturesque district along the Mediterranean Ocean. But there was unrest and violence that had arisen in parts of Judea. So the Roman emperor assigned Pilate to go back to Jerusalem and make Judea great again. And yes, I am trying to be a little bit cute with the use of that phrase, but that's really why he was there, to restore order. When the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate and ask Pilate to deal with Jesus, it just adds more work to his plate. So Pilate brings Jesus in for interrogation, and they get nowhere fast. It's one of those kinds of conversations where they answer each other's questions with another question, Pilate says, so Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Do you ask this on your own, Jesus says, or did others tell you about me? Well, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? I don't know. What have you done? I don't know. What have you done? And back and forth, they kind of go. But then Jesus makes a statement that befuddles Pilate and gives us clarity about who Jesus really is. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate thinks for a minute and then says, so you are a king? You see, this idea does not fit any kind of framework in Pilate's brain. If Jesus is a king, Pilate understands that kings and rulers and people with authority don't stand alone, unprotected, when they're challenged. They have bodyguards. They have armies. They have people fighting to keep them from being handed over. But this is not how the authority of Jesus works. Jesus tells Pilate that he came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to his voice. Well, at this point, Pilate gets impatient, so he ends the conversation with one last question that is more dismissive than it is inquisitive. He simply says, what is truth? And walks on out. What is our truth? What is your truth? It's a good question for us. Where do we find truth? Where do we look for authority and guidance in our lives. In this culture of alternative facts, it seems like one can find research and statistics and data to justify almost any 
position on almost any issue. Or one can find enough support in the truthiness of like-minded groups that dialogue with people holding different opinions isn't always necessary. In fact, trying to work with someone you disagree with can be seen as weak. But in the kingdom of God, we don't have to prove or argue or fight our way into the truth. Jesus shows us a different way of being in the world. For Jesus, truth is not some objective fact or well-reasoned idea that is obvious to everyone, as if that even exists. For Jesus, truth is a relationship with God through him, a relationship that reflects God's grace and justice and forgiveness. Truth is not a thing. It is a person. It is Jesus himself. But because Jesus is not of this world, it is also a way that leads to the cross because it is countercultural and it is disarming and it is oddly threatening to those who expect truth to come through argument or authority or might. But here is the good news. While the kingdom of God is not of this world, God so loved this world that Jesus became human in this world in order to be the truth, to bear witness to God's love and justice here among us. So rather than ask what is truth, the question becomes who is truth? And in faith we can answer, it is Jesus Christ. In this way, as followers of Jesus, we are living in a world of virtual reality. How many of you know what virtual reality is? Any of you? A few? It's, it's where you put on a set of goggles, highly sophisticated goggles, that is, and you're instantly transported into a newly created interactive world that responds to your movements and directives. I haven't actually had the opportunity to do this. My son did it a couple weeks ago, and he said it was awesome to be able to see new and different worlds. In our Christian virtual reality, we see the world as it is with signs of progress, but also with signs of continuing injustice and disappointment. But then we look through the virtual lenses of God's truth, God's vision for justice and peace and freedom for all of God's children. And we start to see the world differently. We can see what is possible. We can see what is needed. And we can see how we might be the ones to make a difference. Now, there are probably techies in here who would say what I'm describing is actually augmented reality and not virtual reality. But please just roll with me here on this example. My point is that when we are transformed and changed by the truth of Jesus Christ, we are called to see the world differently and then to act on what we see. What might that mean for you, Mount Carmel Lutheran Church, and for each of you as followers of the truth? Are there situations in your home, in your neighborhood, your school or your workplace where your perspective could make a life-giving difference? Well, I pray that you, that we, will listen for the voice of Jesus Christ who will guide us 
into his truth to make a difference for the sake of the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.